Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. How are we all feeling the morning after a brand new Star Trek movie? Yes. I hope you're as happy as I am, and I know that you are. So without further ado, let's bring in the cast of Star Trek Beyond, Simon Pegg. Let's hear it, everybody. Simon Pegg. Zoe Saldana. Chris Pine. Zachary Quinto. John Cho. And Carl Urban. Good morning. Whose Doctor Who phone is this? There's nerds in the house. Zach, you're here? Zach? Oh, it's cold in here. Okay, we're good. Do you know my jacket? I do. The bridge is yours. Okay, the first question, just to kick things off, is obviously this is a very big year. It's the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. So for all of you, sort of the challenge to make a movie that A, is going to honor the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, B, uh, be the next level in this trilogy of films, and C, also be just a great action movie for people who are not fans or have never even seen a Star Trek movie before. Let's start. Simon? Uh, yeah, that was very important to us. Doug Jung and I going in, and Justin, um, we wanted to sort of try and create a hybrid of an episode of the original series with you know, a spectacular cinematic event. These films, the Star Trek movies, have always been event films. With the TV series, you get time to, to spend with the characters. It's a longer game. With the film, you kind of have to hit it. It has to be very self-contained. It has to be memorable. And, and so that was the, the, the thing, was to try and make sure everybody that's been here for 50 years gets what they deserve in terms of a good Star Trek film. But the people who've never seen it before... Uh, who, who perhaps aren't as familiar with Star Trek, they don't know about Kirk fighting in whatever you said, Scott, uh, you know, <laughs> then they, they're welcome too. This is an inclusive universe in every way, not just uh, fictionally, but uh, factually. Thank you. Also, you know, you really shake things up in this one. You know, the dynamic, uh, the Kirk-Spock dynamic has been explored twice before already, but now, uh, definitely, going back to the old show, you have Spock and McCoy together a lot, and what is a good film like with great drama? So how was it for Zach and Carl to really spend a lot more time together and further explore that dynamic of these great characters? Yeah, wasn't even getting ready. Carl, you go first. All right. <laughs> Classy, bro. <laughs> um, yeah, for me, I, I feel like this is probably uh, the most fun that I've had um, making a Star Trek film. Uh, I think what Simon and Doug were able to do uh, was present probably the most well-defined, well-rounded version of the character. And uh, it certainly gave me a, a lot of material to work with. And I had an amazing time working with Zach, and I have a huge amount of respect for him and his approach. And it was just great to have those two characters that are so diametrically opposed to each other uh, be forced into a situation where they have to depend on each other to survive. And through the process, come to a deeper understanding of who they both are. Um, and uh, it was uh, obviously a, a great opportunity to explore a lot of comedy, but then to also really kind of deepen the relationship between the two. And, uh, and I think that by the end of it, they were able to go back to their respective corners with a, a bit of inside knowledge. And 
uh, I think that it's, uh, for long-term fans, a, uh, a rewarding interaction. Zach. Well, I couldn't agree more, Scott. Carl took all the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Literally, I gave all those exact same answers. Uh, in my no, uh, Carl and I had a great time working together. You know, um, in a movie franchise where we're used to spending so much time together, all of us really, on the bridge of the Enterprise and in many of our adventures, it was actually really nice to have so many days where it was only Carl and me together, and I think we got to know each other and appreciate each other already more more than we already did, um, which was already a significant amount. And um, yeah, and I think from a character standpoint, I, I really echo the idea that these two characters historically in this franchise are uh, come, come at things from entirely different perspectives and points of view. And uh, I think there's nothing more fun for fans of the original show to see that dynamic unmitigated by Kirk, who usually manages to get between them. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and I think in the same way, you know, Bones really saves Spock's life in this film. And I think, uh, I think there's a deep appreciation for that, obviously. Um, and um, and, and they, they end this film in a, in a much better place as a duo than I would say they begin it. Well, another thing that sort of is a throwback to the original show is the dynamic between McCoy and Kirk. In the beginning of the film, Chris, you have that scene at the bar where you're contemplating uh, what's it all mean? I mean, it was right out of a, a scene from the Corbomite Maneuver or Balance of Terror. So what was it like to just explore now that you've been out in space or the, the crew of the Enterprise? I mean, come on, you got the right moderator. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, you could be in the next film, Scott. Fine, you're in. Thank you. Jeez. That's what I was getting at. Jeez. But uh, to, to sort of explore, now that the Enterprise has been out in space for 966 days, almost three years. Uh, did you get that reference, 966? I, did get reference. I got it. Yeah. Yes. 9th September 1966. That yeah. was very good. Um, all yeah. you needed was an eight. Good. Wow. Can you really get that on your own? And McCoy. Did you deduce that on you your own? Seriously? Six six, I got that. You you literally got nine six six. I wrote it down. Zach, that's Scott Mans you're talking to. I know I'm talking to, but but it's like the limits of my my. They just are always exceeded. Like I just really think you can't get any nerdier. Well, no. (laughs) But that moment in in the when when Spock is is is, uh, ailing. It was like that scene of Bread and Circuses, <laughs> where McCoy says, I know why you're not afraid of dying, you're more afraid of living. I mean, come on, I'm your guy here. You are. But back to Kirk and McCoy, let's talk about Chris, the, like, where, where is Kirk three years into this mission? I mean, he's not super excited about being a Starship captain. Uh, yeah, I always have, the most fun in these films are either when we're laughing or talking, um, and then usually then shit blows up, and then we have to do the shit blowing up acting, which is, uh, I, th- I think I spend the majority of the film saying, let's go. <laughs> Can we do it? I don't know. <laughs> you know and then just breathing heavily. <laughs> uh, so that scene in particular was one of my, was one of my favorites. And um, um, it's, we, I talked a lot with Simon about how to nuance the... Uh, or what particularly was Kirk's um, trip and this whole thing. And uh, once we landed on the the idea of him growing out of, mo- or moving out of underneath his father's shadow, that made a lot of sense. And to do it with, with Carl was 
great fun, and we had all that fun stuff with the whiskey and the vodka moment, which, you know, just like these, it's just little itty-bitty things that make us giggle and have a good time that hopefully people appreciate, and uh, as you said, it's all these little nuance beats of the, the references and whatnot. So. That was improvised, by the way, when they were talking about, I thought he'd be a, a vodka guy. That all came out from those guys on the day, and that's the kind of superb actors we get to work with as writers. It's like, sometimes you just go, go with it, and they do, and they come up with the best lines. Well, Not always. Up to the audience right away. <laughs> no. Okay, why don't you start? Uh, yes, uh, as a fan of Beastie Boys, thank you that uh, sabotage ultimately beat the aliens. <laughs> I might be alone in this, but I want to ask Simon in your discussion with Justin and Doug, uh, the, your decision including the, including this classical music, as Bone said. Uh, what was the that decision was behind joke. it? <laughs> <laughs> Say again, sorry. What was the decision, the decision behind including this? Uh, it was a. It was a. We just love the idea of them foiling uh, a technologically terrifying threat with something very analog and old VHF. You know, it was like radio. The the the, the initial idea was that they fired an old radio into the middle of the swarm. It, it, it took many shapes as we wrote it, but we realized that was obviously there's no sound in space. We have to abide by physics some of the time. So um, it was just the idea that, you know, we like the idea that Jayla had discovered this old ship that had an archive of music. She, she discovered rap music and liked it. You know, she says she likes the beats and shouting. And, <laughs> and we like the fact that in the end they use it to kind of, you know, cause the swarm to have this big... And I like the fact that they all have the idea together about what, what it could do. And, you know, Sabotage was a song we used in 09, and it, it, it's part of Kirk's childhood. It all links... All these things links back to his past and his dad. The motorbike the song, it's all kind of him letting go of these, these things, you know, and moving on as a man as well, so it's important for Kirk's character, but it's just a kick-ass song, you know? I mean, yeah. if anything's going to blow up a swarm of spaceships, it's going <laughs> to be the Beastie Boys, come on. <laughs> Scott Hoover in the back. Uh, the film has such a lovely tribute to Leonard Nimoy, and I'm curious, was there initial expectation earlier on in the process that he would be part of the film before his passing and how did you figure out how you wanted to pay homage to him? When, Leonard, when did Leonard die? It was during the writing process, wasn't it? Yeah, he died on February 27th. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, <clears throat> if Leonard was well enough to be a part of this film, I'm sure he would have been and I know that there were early conversations with him about that possibility, which... Uh, you know, true to his uh, incredible self, he knew himself well enough to know that that wouldn't be possible at a certain point. And, uh, and then I think it became important to all of us to figure a way to honor his legacy. And I thought Simon and Doug uh, did a beautiful job of incorporating it into the narrative of the film. Um, we all carried him with us through this production for sure. And it was definitely uh, a different kind of feeling to make this movie without him, for me in particular. Um, but I think he was very much a part of it in spirit and certainly in the film now and, uh, and, and will be a part of anything we do moving forward, for sure. We wanted to make it part of Spock's arc, uh, Zach Spock's arc as well, not just a, a reference to, to, to Spock Prime or, 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 or you know, what, what we did eventually, with, of course, which was to dedicate the film to him. But it, 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 we wanted to have his passing be something which inspired our Spock to move on as well, and so it became an integral part of the story, not just a kind of nod in, in Leonard's direction. That felt more right to do it that way. Thank you. My question is for Mr. Simon. Um, I heard the director say that the main reason he wanted to tackle this project is because 
his childhood dream sort of was to blow up the enterprise and then bring it back together. Mm. So I'm wondering, was that a collaborative effort or was that all his idea that he presented to you and then you guys developed it in the script? I hated the idea at first. We had literally, <laughs> I, I, I swear, we had like rows about it. Like I'm the, I was shouting down, at him down the phone going, you can't do that. You can't destroy the enterprise. Uh, my, my problem was that we've, if, if you think it's something new, then we've seen it before. It happened in Search for Spock. It happened in Generations. But Justin was like very, very determined. And as we spoke about it, I realized what he was doing brilliantly was he was not only sort of taking out a main character, but he was removing the physical connective tissue between the crew to see what happens when you take away the thing that physically bonds them together. You know, if you take away that thing that, that, that necessitates their being a unit, do they dissipate or do they come back together? And that was the genius of that thing. You take it away very violently and, and dramatically, and then you wait and see if they all come back together to be this family, which is essentially what they are. And, um, and of course they do. And, and I realized I backed down immediately and, and said, yeah, you're right, which I, will, I do occasionally do that, not always. <laughs> uh, but in this instance, I realized it was a brilliant idea. And, um, but yeah, initially I was opposed to it. of your character and also her feelings for Spock in this movie? Um, she's tired. I think she's homesick. And I felt that that's the one thing I appreciated the most about what Simon and Doug that did for, for this installment is that they, they, made us, they made us human, you know, and, and, and just homesick and sad and, and, uh, and how being overly worked and being away from home and all the things that keep you grounded can put a strain not just on the intimate relationships that you may have, um, but also you know the professional ones. And um, I thought I would never see the day where I can I, I would see like I would walk into the Enterprise and we're kind of like not rolling our eyes at each other, but we're not that you know excited to see each other. And um, so, I, and, and I thought, okay, well, this, this is a great place to start because I, I can only imagine where we're going to end up. It's like, and we literally end up in, in the opposite direction. We're, we're, we're dying to be close to each other. We're dying to save each other and be, get back together. So I thought, okay, that's brilliant. And, uh, you know, she's, um, I guess the relationship with Spock and, and Uhura felt so normal and human to me that it's sort of the consequences that, that may occur when you decide to love your coworker in a in a in, you know in a lovey-dovey way, and <laughs> you know it just sometimes the professionalism can get in the way of of um, of the spirituality, and I feel like that's what happened between both of them, and I, I do have a feeling that it was probably like her decision to sort of go listen. You have a lot of stuff that's about to start brewing in, from your end, and I have to figure some stuff out. So it's probably just that was your that. decision. <laughs> Come on, be a gentleman. Think what you need to. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean. I think it ends on a really hopeful note, don't you? Yeah. Let's go I with think. hope. But I mean, but if if he were to walk in with some other Vulcan girl or. I, shit would go down, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that Volkaya amulet would come right off. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wonder if, if anyone else could uh, contribute to this, but since it is 50 years now since Star Trek began, it seems your character especially has gone through 
changes that sort of mirror women's changes, perhaps, in science fiction, in, in our culture and society. Can you talk a little bit about how you think she's evolved to what you're doing now and anybody else from 65 to 2016 with this? I think there's, there's a beautiful, um, I, I hate using the word sprouting, but it's true. Women are becoming very, very independent, not just, um, not just to add, add in the workforce, but also in their personal lives. There's just something about like realizing that you, you should want to be <clears throat> a part of something. You don't necessarily have to be a part of something in order for you to be validated or, or respected or appreciated or considered strong enough. So I feel that, that this breakup that Uhura and Spock have is, is amazing because she fell in love with her teacher. So he came as this figure that represented responsibility and safety and, you know, and maturity and wisdom. And now I think that she feels strong enough to, I mean, if I, if I choose to see it that way, there is a parallel uh, um, universe situation here that's going on with Uhura and women these days, is that uh, there's no longer this animosity or this resentment to sort of prove who you are. You just want to be alone. You just want to be left alone to sort of find out who you are because you're interested in it, you're curious. So I like this autonomy that's happening with women right now where there's, um, it's, and I like when, when, a, when a battle is fought just with a spoken word and, uh, and no, no, uh, nothing that feels tense or, you know, violent behavior or something, I guess. I start to babble. That's, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I'll just add something to that. Like, you know, one of the questions that we were asked, um, maybe, uh, uh, you know, for giggles on the, on the tour in either Sydney or London was, uh, which timeline would you choose to be in the original series or, or ours if you had the choice? And I did say ours if forced to choose for this reason, like there, Roddenberry did set up a world, you know, uh, that was incredibly progressive, but it was tempered by the, the social mores of the era. And I feel like we can go further in, in, in 2016 than he was able to do at the time. And to your point, I feel like uh, the- I know, <laughs> it's why I like what you're saying. You know, th that he's, that this, our version is able to give more to the women and the people of color uh, in the cast than, than than Roddenberry was originally able to, I think. And not yeah. because he didn't want to either. Not because he didn't want to, correct, yeah, yeah. He absolutely wanted to. Yeah. Well, let's talk, uh, let's go a little further with that, John, on, on how the character, right, right, right here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on how Sulu has evolved. And, and uh, I'm really, like, when that idea came up on how to really give more background into Sulu's character. The idea came up, uh, I, I believe Simon pitched it, and then um, I was told of it uh, through uh, Justin early, pretty early on and when he had uh, set up at, at Paramount and, um, and we went in to have a chat and get reacquainted. Um, and I thought it was a beautiful idea. I had concerns about how it would be received uh, by George. Um, I had some other concerns, but it, it was really uh, the handling of it that was most important to me. And having seen the film, I think uh, its nonchalant posture toward it is uh, the best thing about it. And the fact that it's normalized, and, and, and it comes, it's kind of news now, but 
if you rewatch the movie in 10 years, you won't think anything of it. It'll just go right by you. And um, that's the best thing about it. it. There's no music cue. There's no close up. It's just. Dun, it dun, just dun. <laughs> He's gay. Oh that was. He's <laughs> <laughs> running around screaming in the old He's time. gay, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like the one thing that I guess has has taken a, a, a secondary uh, um, position is that. It, it wasn't just that we revealed that he's gay, we revealed that he's a father. So uh, none, of the, none of our characters have uh, families that we've ever talked about. So I, I, I actually feel quite puzzled that in 2016, um, we're, we're having like a, a, a bit of a fit <laughs> over who he, who he fathered a baby with. The point is, I'm is happy he, he's a dad, you know? He had somebody on Yorktown. What the, the, the point, <laughs> the of point is, is he's story. promiscuous. He was compromised. <laughs> 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 what we wanted to do was put somebody we care about in Yorktown. So when Yorktown was under threat, that, that yeah. made the threat tangible. We knew that Sulu's family was there. So it, made, it wasn't just a bunch of faceless Federation people. There was somebody there that we cared about too because we care about Sulu. And, um, and that was really important thing. The nature of that relationship w w wasn't, wasn't an issue. And by the way, the whole thing with George is, you know, people like to make things into a spat. George and I email all the time, have big, long, lovely discussions about it, and, and we're on great terms. It was never a kind of a, we were never shouting each other or anything like that. It was just, and it's a great discussion to have. So um, I'm, I'm really happy with the way that it's been talked about and responded to, and, and I'm still a huge fan of, of GT, for sure. Right here. This film is a bit bittersweet with the loss of Anton, and Chris and, Chris and uh, John have spent quite a bit of screen time with him. Uh, what was it, this process working with him, and if anybody on, on the cast has heard from his family and their reaction to this film, what, what has their, been re their reaction been to Star Trek Beyond? First of all, it's, um, it's devastating to lose a family member, and... Um, you know, we're at a point where we should be celebrating not only this film, but this beautiful man, this talented man. And for all of us, it is um, almost incomprehensible to be at the point where we have to talk about him in the past. Um, and the pain of his loss is still very raw. Um, we went and spent time with Anton's family. And... Um, we, uh, we know that they will be very, very proud of his contribution to the film, and this film will forever be probably the most special experience for all of us. For, you know, it represents a golden period where our family was together, fully together for the last time, and, and it really was, I think, as Simon said, uh, the best summer of our adult lives. And... Um, we love him so much, we miss him terribly. You know, in the original series, in episodes like Who Mourns for Outer Eyes, Gamesters of Triskelion, Spectre of the Gun, Kirk. This is a bit, right? What? This, this is a bit. This is actually a follow up because Kirk was like a father figure <clears throat> to check up. And in this movie, Chris, you got to spend a lot of time with Anton. So, like, what, in your opinion, this made him like a really special actor? Um, uh, 
he was he was just a good um, he was a good guy. He was just a good he was a good guy. He was very sweet. He was very um, um, beautifully, authentically Anton. There was not <laughs> much of a censor on the boy. And um, I remember one of the first times I met him, like nine years ago, whatever he was seventeen, and. Um, I invited him back to my trailer to, to play guitar because I knew he played guitar and he played guitar really, really, really well. And he said, I can't, man, I gotta go back to my trailer. And I was like, okay, why? And he's, he was translating a, <laughs> wasn't like he was, he was translating a, like an esoteric Russian novel into English just because that's what he wanted to do. And eight, nine years later, I talked to him and he was still translating it. And he was <laughs> still reading this book on physics that this French philosopher had written. and. He would still try to get all of us to go to these, these, like, he'd be in Vancouver and he wanted to see some German neo-expressionist film that none of us, and he would talk about as if everyone has or should have seen it. Well, um, well my husband was the only one that I called him. He was like, hey, are we going to go see this movie? He's like, oh, I fell asleep. <laughs> I ended up going that night. With Did you? you? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think. I think <laughs> He was a great guy. He was, he was just totally fearless, and I think I would, uh, you know, you try to grasp onto something that's a positive out of losing such a um, such a good guy. And I think it's just be fearless creatively. He was always working on stuff. He had music projects and photography projects. He was going to direct his first film this summer. He was just spectacularly interested in life in a really a great way. So. Who's got the next question? Right over there. Yeah, you. you. Um, yeah, this is for Simon. Um, what would uh, Tim from Spaced like and dislike about this movie? <laughs> well, uh, I, this is a, for those of you who don't know. I, I I started out in a sitcom in the UK called Spaced, and it was about a nerdy guy. I don't know what I was talking about. It wasn't me at all. Uh, but there's a line in Spaced where Tim says, as sure as eggs is eggs, as sure as day follows night, as sure as every odd-numbered Star Trek movie is shit. <laughs> and I wrote that in 1998, I think. And then here we are in 2016, and I've written an odd-numbered Star Trek movie. And uh, I'm happy to say that Tim is wrong. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's an incredible thing to look back on the circularity of that, you know, uh, uh, of having grown up a fan of Star Trek and, and, and science fiction, to be now participating it in such uh, in it in such an active way. Um, I tried to just make the kind of Star Trek movie Tim Bisley would like. You know, that's what Doug and I did. And when I say Tim Bisley, I'm talking about the people that have been with Star Trek for a long time. You know, because Star Trek must have been doing something right because it's around for 50 years. And if it ain't broke, you know, don't fix it. So we, we, we wanted to embody the original show, instill it with what made the original show great, but also frame it in a, uh, in a, a big movie way, you know, which is uh, a luxury they never had back in the day. That's why the series turned into such a great thing. They, necessity was the mother of invention with that show. They, they had to make these wonderful little teleplays. They couldn't rely on special effects. Now we can do both. And it felt like, you know, I was always thinking, what would Tim Bisley think? Front row right here. Hi, the film felt like a throwback to the TV shows where they go on alien planets and fight. So what was it like for all of you being away from the con and in space and actually on a foreign land fighting enemies? 
I like being on the ship. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's easier. No, you don't understand. We were like in a quarry and oh, it was just dust everywhere and <laughs> helicopters flying really low and I just, I don't know. I like, <laughs> and I like being on the Enterprise. It's cleaner. <laughs> the spirit of exploration. <laughs> <laughs> on the upside, it was. <laughs> on the upside, it was cool to be paired off. Zoe, even even though you were having a miserable time, <laughs> no, I enjoyed. I enjoyed but you heard time how much you. I was complaining, but I was so happy that I was complaining with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, to get fractured off, you just it, it you know typically you're as characters relating on the bridge, everyone's relating to Kirk, you know, and and um, so there's less talking to one another, and so just getting that opportunity brought out some different colors and vibes, so it was, it was good. Doug and I realized a couple of times, had, had you ever, had Chekhov ever spoken to Sulu at any point in the other two movies, like directly to? I don't we recall. realized a couple of the characters hadn't really interacted at all. It, There's it, a lot of panicky glances. Uh, a little bit. They were <laughs> on a bridge, <laughs> looking at each other. Don't give away the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Again, look who you got here. All right, who's next? Uh, Bibbs. Hey, uh, I have a, actually kind of a similar question to the space question, but for Simon, um, you're kind of living the dream. You get to tell the people in Star Trek what to do now after all these years. I um, asked them nicely. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But I don't know. Like, I would have, I have like notebooks full of stuff that I would like to have done on my favorite shows and movies. And I was wondering, is there anything in Star Trek Beyond that you just always wanted to see in a Star Trek movie since you were young that you finally got to do and that was really important to you to add in the movie? Um, I think the kind of, the, the business of writing a good story and, and making sure the plot, were, all that kind of superseded any kind of, you, you know, sort of uh, wish fulfillment. We had to start with that, really. I mean, the whole... The whole uh, splitting up the, the, the crew into different little interactive groups was nice. I loved the relationships in Star Trek, and it was nice to pursue those a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, specifically, particularly with Bones and, uh, and, and, Sp and Spock. And uh, the, as Chris mentioned, the scene with uh, Kirk and Bones at the beginning, which is a kind of vague sort of parallel to the scene in Wrath of Khan when, on Kirk's birthday when Bones and Kirk have that moment together. But um, it was just... The whole thing, you know, getting getting the keys to that kingdom was was a real joy, and and it was nice to sort of be able to to write our signature underneath the hundreds and hundreds of signatures that have gone into writing the Star Trek universe over the years. It was nice to put our little stamp on that, and um, you know, fill it with little Easter eggs that only we know about. Right here. Since you get, can you hear me? Since you guys were working with Justin this time around, uh, you're a family in a different location. You're not in Los Angeles. You kind of have to uh, rally together a little differently. What was the dynamic working with Justin compared to JJ? I mean, Justin has a very different energy about him. I'd say he's a little more internalized just as a person. He's a little quieter, but he's no less confident. Uh, he's incredibly gifted as a visual storyteller. And, uh, and I think he's really sensitive to character dynamics as well. He brings a balance of both of those um, extremes. And uh, he came in on an already moving train in a lot of ways, you know? I mean, he didn't have a lot of time to prep for this film. 
and uh, I think all of us were incredibly impressed by his sense of leadership and vision. And uh, I think also it was really great to have Simon uh, in a position of creative influence on this film because he was a, a tremendous conduit for us early on before we kind of forged our own relationships with, Simon, uh, with, with, uh, with Justin. Um, but all in all, I mean, he was a really welcome addition. And, uh, you know, I would say very different from JJ, but also really exciting and really unique in his own ways. And, um, and, and reflective of this experience, which was different and new for us to be away from the past and the, the configuration of the last two films. But uh, we all had a, a great time working together and we really enjoyed him and seeing what he was able to create in, in the final product is, uh, is really exciting for all of us. Back to the front row right here. Hi, my question is about prop and costume. It's uh, costume is very seems tight, so you had to <laughs> skip the lunch sometime. Or <laughs> any any prop episode is like a the gadget looks like a kind of old cell phone for me <laughs> sometimes. So tight around like where? Tight <laughs> 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 around. So, uh, is there any, any, you know... <laughs> I think the pants were looser, right, guys? We yeah, all, we all talked about it. fantastic this time. <laughs> so much movement. A lot, of, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of space in the hips, which I appreciated. Um, yeah, there was a lot of... Uh, I don't know how to answer your question, but I, I will say... <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make up my own question and then answer that. So, uh, but there was a lot of... Um, you know, this is kind of, it's like the retro super future version of Star Trek. So it's, it's looking way ahead into what Star Trek can become and, and also having very specific nods to the past. And one of the very small things is like throughout the three iterations of the film so far, there have been a lot of discussions about colors of yellow, for instance, for Kirk's shirt and, like, and the cut of the, of, the, um, of the shirt. And this one is a very, you know, a, a specific nod to the to the original series. It's not the kind of bright, fantastic yellow of the, of the first and the second. It's this kind of, you know, lovely Kirkian mustard green. So, um, <laughs> and um, I had a lot of lunch. <laughs> so. I think Sonia did an extraordinary job. Um, so our, our costume designer, one of the things I was most proud of was the fact that uh, un unlike the previous two films that um, we got to do with JJ for whatever reason. I don't know what the reason, but the women, uh, the women in and the Starfleet uniforms in Star Trek Beyond all have ranks on the uniforms, which I, um, I think is a fantastic thing. A fan pointed it out to me, and I was shocked that uh, that wasn't the case. So one of the first things I did when I got to Vancouver was go and talk to Sonia about that, and she said, "Oh yeah, don't you worry. Women will have ranks." Uh, I think she did a great job. Definitely. Yeah. I bring this also bring like a bit of a, a, a '60s throwback say. to. Uh, to the costumes, but then also making them uh, slightly uh, new. I had massive envy for Chris Pine's uh, survival suit. Yeah, but you get that that just wonderful shade of blue, Carl. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you look lovely. <laughs> Running complexion of yours. So I have a two-part question. Greedy. With this... <laughs> film right now. <laughs> uh, how far do you see the franchise going now with these characters? And is there any you know, thoughts of a spinoff? 
uh, with the next generation and so forth. And then also just the fun question of what was the greatest takeaway for each of you from this film? Like what was the best moment you had with each other or in the pairs? Thank you. Well, I hope it goes on for another 50 years, you know, and whether that's, we'll keep going as long as we can until we're old and inappropriate. <laughs> Some of us already are, I say, <laughs> me. Uh, uh, but, you know, and who knows? Actually, the thing is about the new timeline is that Picard, Janeway, all those guys, they don't exist. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> man, would I be in trouble. Uh, yeah, I hope it, I mean, I hope it goes on. There's a new CBS series starting. It's all about, you know, the, the, the galaxy, let alone the universe, is, is a boundless place. And there's so many adventures to be had. And as long as we have this idea that, you know what, we might not just all kill ourselves and die in a big fire. We might actually become <laughs> slightly more enlightened, slightly more tolerant beings and go off into space. That is a lovely idea that I think secretly the vast majority of us want to achieve, you know. Um, Star Trek would yes. live forever. Yeah, longevity, absolutely. Well, I just, you know, you just said something about, like, the next generation. Are you calling us old? <laughs> <laughs> We just got here. It's only been three <laughs> movies. <The show. laughs> huh? No, no, here's cooler. <laughs> let's, let's be present. Tom. <laughs> Stop wishing your life away. <laughs> Hi, Mikey from the LA Japanese Daily News. Uh, I just want to touch very briefly on what uh, you mentioned earlier. It's a beautiful comment, by the way, about 10 years not noticing anything different. Uh, I spoke to George this morning on the way in, and he and I were talking about oh how... Oh, my. Star <laughs> 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 That's weird, because he says that. <laughs> he, he says that sometimes. You've met the man. But he and Brad and I were talking about how th this the, the original Star Trek because you mentioned they didn't have a lot of special effects to rely on, they relied as much on social commentary and reflective of the change at the time uh, to sort of propel their, their story forward. In this day and age, I guess the question is, what can the message be now? I mean, you know, in the Oscar so white realm of things, and I look at this cast, and what can the, what can the message for Star Trek be in 2016 to help propel it forward? like you said, perhaps for another 50 years. Well, I mean, I think the message is the same as it was when it began. It's just that we have more room to explore and express it um, than they did at the time. Uh, you know, it's shocking to me how divisive our culture has become, and I feel like Star Trek maintains a position of inclusivity and um, unity that uh, is as resonant today as it was in, in the late 60s. Um, you know... This film in particular explores that idea, um, one, one side of that being about the unity and inclusivity and the other being about breaking that apart. And, um, and I think that's, in a way, really reflective of the society we live in today. Uh, it's troubling to me on such deep levels that we've gotten to this point of uh, unwillingness to see uh, varied points of view or uh, feelings or opinions or perspectives um, and, I, and I think that Star Trek remains in a, a landscape of uh, popular culture entertainment, something that is um, a beacon of inclusivity and, uh, and progressive thinking. 
Uh, I think it just takes on different forms now than it did 50 years ago. I think the film is actually even more opposite. It's become more so in the last, even since we shot it, mm. you know, the message of this, the social commentary in this iteration of Star Trek is we're better together. That's what it's about. It's about collectivism. And in this era of Brexit and talking about building walls in certain places, you know, now more than ever we should be thinking about the value of collectivism, about cooperation and, you know, unity. unity. That's our, that, is, that can be and is our strength. And the more fractured we become, the less secure we all feel, you know? So, it, yeah. you know, the, the, the villain in Star Trek is like, we could have called him Brexit. It's quite a science fiction name, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying, you know, like, when you go into, you know, in the Star Trek uh, uh, setup, you're going into space and seeing so many different kinds of species. It does become... Uh, comically apparent when you look around the planet Earth that we live on that we do have so much more in common than we don't, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, it, it, you know, the, the, the little things that seem to divide us here in our present time seem even more exaggerated, exaggeratedly small uh, after seeing, you know, an episode of Star Trek, so. We've all got one head. Do you know what I mean? Let's live together. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> <laughs> question? Okay. Well, I just want to talk about Sophia for a second because I thought she was pretty kick-ass in this. And what, what moves did she show you, Simon, on uh, any kind of action moves? Sophia's incredible. She's because she's a dancer and so she's in physically so adept. So she was very up for, um, you know, the physicality of it. It's funny. I told this story the other day that, that when we, Doug and I and Justin in the writing room, which wanted to create this, this very independent female, very resourceful character on the ultimate surface. And we were trying to get a point. We didn't have a name for her, so we, we, we used to call her Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone. That was her, <laughs> that was her long name. And so we go, OK, so Scotty lands there. And then suddenly, Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone comes out. She fights these guys. And it started to get tiring, always saying Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone. It's a long name. So then we started calling her J-Law. And then she became Jayla. So. Uh, <laughs> Jailer is basically named after Jennifer Lawrence and Winter's Bone. Um, but yeah, we, there, there aren't enough girls in Star Trek. You know, Zoe has a lot on her shoulders, as, as you know. And uh, so we wanted to increase that. And also with Commodore Paris, you know, as a, as a figure of extreme authority. Uh, yeah, Sophia, we all love Sophia, don't we? She's a nutcase and a, and a, a golden addition to this, this group. So um, she, uh, she's awesome. Anything to add? Well, ladies and gentlemen, Star Trek Beyond opens July 22nd, a week from Friday. Thank you so much, Carl, John, Zach, Chris, Zoe, Simon Space. And uh, we're going to do a switcheroo on the panel. So sit tight, and we'll be back in a bit. Now, round two of today's press conference for Star Trek Beyond. So let's start by bringing in Simon Pegg, co-writer of Star Trek Beyond. Doug Jung, co-writer of Star Trek Beyond. Justin Lin, the director of Star Trek Beyond. J.J. Abrams, the man who needs no introduction, the producer of Star Trek Beyond. And Lindsay Weber, a producer of Star Trek Beyond. So kicking off things for round two. So just to sort of start where we started with the cast, I guess the first question really is 50th anniversary of the show that started it all. A film that not only 
pays a lot of tribute and is a throwback to that show, but also not only is, is a, a standalone action film, but also a standalone film where you don't even need to see the first two movies in this reboot series to appreciate and, and go with and go beyond, so to speak. So let's talk about the sort of uh, challenges to walk that tightrope, to make a movie that the fans are going to love, of course, but a movie, a, a movie for everybody. Uh, well, I, I, to reiterate what we said before, it, it was um, a, 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 a question of combining an existing mythology and, and, and embracing that mythology wholeheartedly and also making sure that nobody felt shut out, you know, so that if you were coming to Star Trek for the first time, you didn't feel like it was, um, you weren't in on, a, 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 on a, some kind of, you know, joke or something. Uh, not a joke, it's very serious. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult tightrope to walk, really. And and if you fall either side of it, you you risk alienating a large portion of your audience. So um, you know, it, it was uh, we were always aware of the fact we were walking across a gigantic precipice. You know, Justin, I know that uh, you're like growing up. You're like me. Like all my friends were Star Wars people, and I was the Star Trek guy. Sorry, JJ. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm here, Scott. <laughs> but Jay, let's talk, Justin. Like, let's talk about what was it that you really fell in love with with the original show? You know, I, I my my family um, we immigrated to the states when I was eight, and um, we they had a little fish and chip shop, and they would close at nine, and we'd have dinner at ten, and and at at 11, it came on channel 13. So my brothers and I, we try to talk our way and then just hang out with them. So from 8 to 18, that was our level of engagement. That was our family time, you know. And I, and I remember moving to a new country, and like I felt like it was just the five of us. But watching Star Trek, it it it, it kind of like instilled in me that family is not just by blood. It's th through shared experience, you know. And that's what I kind of that's what Star Trek gave me. Um, but at the same time, every night, because I, my, our engagement was through reruns, so every night it was a new adventure. It was new obstacles, new challenges, and, and that sense of discovery and exploration was something that I, I really, um, it was a big part of growing up. Um, and yeah, my friends, they all had the little Star Wars figures, but we didn't have any of that, so we had Star Trek. And I, I you know, now I have a seven-year-old, he's a big Star Wars kid, you know? <laughs> so I, I can't wait to, like, next week I'm trying to convert him. <laughs> Justin, tell him about what Oakley is in the film. Oh, you really, should I? Yeah, you oh, should, yeah. man. Okay, so uh, Oakley, since he's like, you know, since I work all the time, like the only excuse I guess that I bring him on set and we try to shoot a shot with him. So, uh, so on fast movies, he's always like the little kid that's looking at cars and stuff. Um, so he gets one on, uh, he's doing this one and he really wanted to be an alien. I said, oh, okay, cool. And he was so adamant. He knew exactly what he wanted. And Joe Harlow came. We had meetings. And he's talking about, like he wanted to be green. He wanted his ears and this and that. And uh, so we shot it. And later on, I'm talking to him. And he, he finally said he wanted to be Yoda. So, <laughs> when, you see, <laughs> so when you see the film, it's a, it's a young Yoda. That's, uh... <laughs> well, JJ. You know, like because you did the first two Star Trek films, 2009 and Into Darkness, what was it like to sort of see this family sort of go off on its own and to evolve with this third movie? Honestly, it was a bittersweet thing, uh, far more sweet than bitter. But um, the, the, the bitterness was only the, the jealousy that I felt that uh, they all got to be together. 
but when I was watching dailies and seeing what Justin was doing uh, with the, the new cast and with this story, the truth is I felt uh, a sort of odd fatherly pride that these people who I adore and who are like a family uh, get to live on in a way and, and then to see what Justin was doing, pushing the envelope in ways that, that I, I wouldn't and I couldn't, you know, doing things that have taught me, you know, uh, uh, lessons in, in action and, and uh, in, in character. And the fact that Justin cared so long and, and so deeply about Trek, uh, you could just see in every scene him putting that passion into the scenes. And so I knew that we were, the, the story was in incredible hands, but uh, I couldn't help but envy all of you for you know, the time you spent together. Yeah, Doug and Simon. So, in the Omega Glory, <laughs> when Kirk is fighting Captain Tracy, right? So Omega Glory, last, second season, second to the last episode. All right, it's getting ugly, everyone. So, so it's getting ugly. Okay. When, when uh, Kirk is fighting Captain Tracy, the captain of the Exeter, who sort of went a little nutso. So you have sort of a, a throwback to that in this movie of Kirk fighting another Starship captain. How? How much fun was it to sort of throw back to some of those great moments that fans of the show love, but not go too far as to have people who have never even seen a Star Trek at all scratching their heads? Yeah, Captain to Captain. That was, captain. That was Justin's <laughs> thing, always Captain to Captain. What, what is the, uh, the, the thrust of their, their beef, you know, and what, what does it mean? that They're both kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, I'm going to let Doug carry on with this because I'm going to talk about co-writing this movie a lot, but this man has to get the credit he deserves for being the extraordinary collaborator and writer that he is. But yeah, talk a bit about Captain to Captain. Well, I think we, we were trying to find a villain that felt uh, worthy of Kirk, but also could be a vehicle for bringing up some of those great thematic things that Star Trek always does. So to have sort of this darker mirror of Kirk represented in Idris' character seemed like a real natural fun place to go, and in the spirit of some of those characters we've seen before without specifically addressing uh, any particular episode. But there is a backstory of, of Idris that ties into the, the mythology of Star Trek in a really nice way. And it just, I don't know, it kind of fell out organically and seemed like a really good fit for what we were trying to accomplish. And what, what about you, Lindsay? What were some of the challenges to just sort of make it be like, okay, yeah, we want to make a movie that the fans are going to like. It is the 50th anniversary, but this is a summer movie, and we want Star Trek to be loved by everybody. Well, I think, you know, the best thing you can do as a producer is pick the right collaborators. And in this group, you know, I was so fortunate to have these people who each had their own pre-existing relationship with the franchise. I was a longtime fan. I went to um, Star Trek conventions as a kid and had a card in my wallet in high school that said, you know, member of Starfleet Academy, I will admit. And so it, for me, it was, it was just, a, you know, really a privilege to work on this franchise. And I think, you know, Justin obviously had his own vision for what he wanted this movie to be, certainly has this incredible visual sense and long relationship with these characters. And all I had to do was help them keep putting one foot in front of the other, and, and they did a beautiful job. Wow, fantastic. And who wants to start in the audience right here? Fred! Well, Star Trek has always been great for diversity with uh, some of the first leading Asian and African-American uh, main cast members. <coughs> um, how important was it to finally, after 50 years, include, start including LGBT in that? Uh, Simon got to speak a little bit about this in the first panel, but if the rest of the panel could 
speak about that and have you had a chance yet to hear from any of the gay trekkers who've been waiting for 50 years to see this representation and how happy they may be? Um, I think it was hugely important, but I think one of the things that we, and how we approached it was to not really make that big a deal of it because if you really think about it on a couple levels, one, one of them logically, in this future in the Roddenberry universe, it would be something that wouldn't be a big deal. So to not address it as if something that was had a spotlight on it felt like sort of true to the nature of, of what Star Trek is, but also to me seems like the natural progression of hopefully where we're headed ourselves in, in, in real life. So I think we, were, we, we wanted to do it uh, that way uh, and include it um, just as if what it is, it's just a normal thing that exists in the world. Lindsay, you sent yeah, me that I, article. Yeah, there's been an amazing, a couple of really amazing posts about it, but one in particular I was really moved by that I believe Slash Film posted about a man who had the courage to come out because of it, who was a longtime um, Trek fan who sort of felt like, if Sulu can do it, I can do it too, and just meant the world to, I think, all of us, that we could have a small part in that. Scott Hoover in the back. Thanks. Um, I wonder if you can talk about how Lindsay and JJ, how Simon, one of your cast members who is the Trek authority and a great <coughs> creator of material in his own right, came in as a screenwriter and got matched with, with Doug. Can you talk about how that conversation got started and how it got to official status? Well, I can, um, I'll just say that when we started working on this movie, uh, we, we had prior experience with Doug as a screenwriter and of course uh, Simon is my British brother, and so um, formerly of the European Union, and um, <laughs> and so uh, it, it it made perfect sense. As sort of crazy as it seemed on one level, it, it was also so obvious to ask if Simon would be interested in in working on the script, and uh, and Lindsay, who was there with Justin and and Simon and, and Doug uh, the whole time. I think that for a moment, it was a little you know, like juggling cats where you're just trying to figure out how it's gonna work because these are two writers, you put any two writers together who have not worked together and it's gonna be tricky for a moment. But they very quickly found a rhythm. Um, Justin, uh, you were very clear about things that you wanted that were important to you. And what was, as it always is, when you have a movie where there is a schedule, and we've all been through this, you know, uh, before. You you simply have to figure out a way to squeeze every great idea out in the time you've got, never giving up, always assuming that that you're going to have the the better idea. But you, this is the idea right now, and it's always the kind of leap of faith that it will work. But the one glue, I think, as as someone who was frankly as much of an observer of what was happening, because I was busy working on on Force Awakens at the time. Uh, what I was watching uh, was a group of people, some of whom, you know, had uh, Starfleet Academy cards in their wallets, other whom were, were you know, died in the wolf fans since childhood, other whom, of, you know, whom were growing up with their families and Star Trek meant everything to them. I saw this love of this world um, really being the thing that united them. And it was, in a, in a, in a crazy way, uh, the, you know, the story of Star Trek of of facing crazy odds and how the group 
everyone is critical to survive it. It was sort of a little bit of what the experience was of making the movie. Every single person uh, was absolutely critical to make this thing work, and they all pulled together to get this thing going in the right direction, and it was, uh, it was a wonderful thing to see. And because I'd been involved in a couple of the movies prior, uh, it was actually, for me, sort of fun not to have to be in the fray the way they were day to day, because uh, I could say, guys, I'm really busy over here. <laughs> other things. So I, I had a, an excuse. Justin, could you talk a little bit? There'll be theaters across the country showing this in that Barco Escape triple screen. Could you talk about making the decision of which scenes to go for, for that, that look and which not and so forth? Wow. Um, you know, the, the extension of the, the frames, it, it, had to be, um, it had to be created after. Um, it, it was something that, that came a little late in the game, um, but I felt like it was appropriate because um, as we were designing the film, um, this is my first experience where, you know, uh, a lot of the shot design, you, though it was kind of talked about throughout the process, it's, it's fully CG. So I, I felt comfortable to make sure that, you know, when we had those scenes, that those immersive scenes, it tends to be kind of CG uh, heavy anyway. So um, it, felt, it felt like it was good. It was a good experience kind of going in, just trying it for the first time. And, um, but it, it felt like, you know, it, now knowing the technology, it would be awesome next time if we actually could incorporate it more into production. Actually, I have a, I have a question real fast. You know, the, the movie's a little more than two hours, but I felt like it really flew by. It really flew by, which is, which is a good thing that it just, like, you know, had you engaged so much. Were there things that you shot that you really wanted to keep in the film that you just went, you know what, let's cut it? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it, it was, uh, I, I thought I, 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 I think personally, I always think I'm pretty relentless, but, but working with JJ and Lindsay and everybody, I mean, it, the, the whole process, it was, it was really cool. It felt like it, it was just alive all the time and we're just going and going. And so, um, I, I, I mean, for me, there, the, a lot of the stuff we enjoyed talking was, you know, Idris, the the, um, the Kral Edison backstory, and also the Marauders, the, the Swarm Soldiers and stuff. And we actually had sequences uh, uh, with that much more of the backstory, but we never got to shoot those, you know. But it was a it was a pretty tight schedule on this one. Basically, everything we shot is pretty much on screen. Right, right here up front. Uh, I, it's such a tragic thing watching it to see Anton up there and knowing he's not around anymore. It's, it's sort of unbelievable still. And I wonder if Justin and Simon could talk a, just a little bit about uh, maybe a favorite moment with him or what you remember most vividly about, about him. Uh, yeah, it doesn't, it still doesn't feel real. I, I, I can't find a way to process it, to be honest. I, I, uh, I, I can't, it, can't, it won't sink in. And I, my, I, my heart goes out to anybody who loses anybody. Uh, it, suddenly or prematurely, you know, it's, it's, it's such a psychological blow, it's difficult to, uh, to even contemplate. I've, I, you know, one thing I've, I've said in some of the introductions is that watching the film and seeing Anton up there so alive and, 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 and forever preserved, in, you know, as he will be in all his films, that's something we should be happy about, that, you know, we're going to get to see him again. Uh, you know, Anton was just... 
I spent a lot of time with Anton in Vancouver this, that last year. He used to call me up in the, in the middle of the night sometimes just to talk. He was an incredibly, incredibly intelligent man. He, he like like uh, the guys were saying, he was translating this rush. He was still working on it in Vancouver. He went home to do it a couple of times, making notes on it, translating this novel. He would talk about film so fluently and so maturely that he'd make us all look like dummies. You know, he, I would have to engage my university brain just to sit down and talk to him about movies because he was exhaustively, he was encyclopedic and he had this, this ridiculous laugh that used to go <laughs> like this. We all used to laugh at him for it and then he would laugh more and then we would laugh more. Um, he was a, an incredible soul. He was a beautiful, beautiful boy and I, I loved him so much. We all did, you know, and it's just, uh, it, it's not something that's easy to talk about. It's not something that, we really want to be having to talk about, you know, other than we miss him. Uh, right here. Just one is for Doug. Yeah, I'll just say, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's still very raw, still processing, and, you know, um, you know, I think it, it, it we, I actually went back, you know, I think there was a group of us who were still finishing the film. We had, we had a few weeks to go, and uh, we went back and, and, and kind of, I went through all the footage again. And, uh, you know, the one thing that, that when I was going through it, 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 I know the interaction with Anton for me, it just is so clear that, you know, when he shows up every day, he's, he does it for the right reasons. You know, I mean, we're making movies. You know, and sometimes you, you, do, you make movies and, and a lot of these petty, all this weird, stupid stuff happen, but he just shows up with a smile on his face and just has ideas. And I, I always just kind of look forward to, you know, every day he's on set, we huddle up and he'd throw like a hundred ideas, even though like maybe he's just in the background or something. And it was just, uh, it's just the way it should be, you know? And, it, and it will, I know for a fact that it will live on with me. And he'll live on with me, and I know with everybody that, that, that he's worked with or he's interacted with, and um, yeah. Right here. This one is for Doug. As the co-writing can sometimes be a difficult task, is there any points of contention between you and Simon that you had in the script that you actually won that gets kept in? And then my second, the second is just more of a statement. I wanted to thank you, J.J. Abrams. My son stunt doubled for young Spock in the first film, and you helped pay for his college. So <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you. That's incredible. There's no good way to answer that question. Um, no, I don't think there was anything that we had fights over or tried to get in. I mean, uh, I mean, it, it is difficult. I've never co-written anything before, and uh, you know, it kind of helps when your partners write more than you. So that 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 was always good. So uh, no, I mean, I think it was just we. I mean, we found a really good. We had a really productive couple weeks where Simon and I were off at Simon's place uh, in London, where it was this kind of magical time, I think, where we just got to shut out all the pressure that was going on around us and this sort of you know, huge machine that was starting to get geared up, and we just were able to sit down. And I think those were the moments that I remember we were just laughing and really like enjoying the idea of, you know, we were writing like 20-page Spock-McCoy scenes because we were just like, we're writing a Star Trek movie. This is amazing. 
And so that's kind of, I, I think. We'd watch episodes in the evening. Yeah, we? we'd watch. Yeah, that was like our, that was, that was your idea. You're like, if we do good today, we can go watch an original episode. <laughs> <laughs> but we'd take our notepads down and be writing down the yeah. names of red shirts and little details that we could feed into, you know, so that the, the universe had a continuity. And right, and then, and then I remember when we finally wrote the, uh, the, the final uh, voiceover. Uh, space. We, we actually went back and you were like, I think we left a part out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was to boldly go where no one's coming. We were sure there the was a bit of, yeah, right. at the end. No. Yeah, right. It so. was, you know, I must just say as well, Doug was just, we had such a great collab, it was such a great pairing. If only because we were always on the same page and it, uh, Doug has an incredible awareness of structure and an, and an overview which is so vital when you're trying to track a story like this and you know, we had disagreements. I, as I said, I, I totally was like, no, you can't destroy the Enterprise at the beginning. But then, you know, when I realized the genius of taking away that thing that bonds them to see if they remain together, I realized that it wasn't a gimmick. It wasn't like, let's just do something spectacular. It was let's do something really incredibly thoughtful and uh, that will drive the story, you know. So, yeah, we always had disagreements. And, and some of them were a bit shouty occasionally, mainly from me. JJ taught me, <laughs> me down off at least three ledges. Uh, but here we are, and I'm so proud of it. And I'm, I, I couldn't hope for a better team than these guys. Hey, guys. So we know there are 50 aliens for the 50 years. And I'm wondering, did everyone have an input? Uh, Simon, did you have like a specific alien you were really excited to get in there? I remember when we were in Dubai and we walked out onto the concourse of Yorktown and just saw Joel's handiwork. You know, Doug and I, what did we write? Like, there's lots of different people here. That was yeah, it. That was, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that was as bad as the people. Yeah. We did have that bit we wanted, like, people handing out. Yeah, it was like, you know, like, you used to see, like, Harry Krishnas at airports when giving out leaflets about, you know, to, so we wanted it to be like that. Like, there were, there were sort of Andorians sort of, come to our planet. And uh, we had this idea that the... Uh, the Yorktown was this incredible melting pot where lots of people were just trying to get people interested in each other's cultures, you know, which is lovely. But we never said, oh, one's got like a shell head and one's got... That was just Joel. Yeah, and the design, the concept it. design was uh, it's staggering. I mean, what you don't see is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you're talking about the red shirts. Like, remember at Obsession, there was, there was Rizzo. Remember Rizzo died? And then in yeah. the Day of the Dove, Johnson. And then there was Mr. Leslie, Lieutenant Galway. They're all okay, died. It's John, getting ugly, people. Right <laughs> <laughs> it's getting ugly again. Right. The list goes on right here. Hey, guys. Uh, John from Roddenberry. Uh, I do have a question for you. wondering if your own reflection on the last two movies or outside feedback Well, certainly getting them out on the road. Yeah, I think that was probably an early decision to, to get them out on the five-year mission. And then, you know, I think once we kind of did that, it w there wasn't a lot of concerns about, you know, uh, how, how the, the, the two previous movies or even a lot of the other things uh, were going to affect that because it felt like we were really in uncharted territory there. And that uh, was incredibly liberating, I think. Stid in 09, that was what we used to call it. We say that happened in Stid, Stid in 09. and that happened in 09. People were referring to Stid for a while, and it took me, I don't know, a few weeks to figure out this. Yeah, well, what the hell is that? I just kept saying, I've never seen I've never <laughs> that movie. In the very back row, purple shirt. Thank you. Uh, I was just wondering if there was any particular one scene that was uh, challenging to film or shoot. One? 
<laughs> One to 240. Yeah. I think it was a, it was, it's a good sign that every day was a, was a challenge, you know, and I, 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 logistically, it was just the, the amount of time that we had, and I think we were all very ambitious. Um, I, I, I actually really kind of enjoy that. So every time we show up in the morning, it was going to be a rough day. It was going to be a tough day, but in the, in the best possible way. You know, I think you want that, and and to have this group of people who 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 are there for the right reasons. You know, and trying to bring that to life. Um, I just felt like we were shooting a big indie movie. I really that that was the best feeling. The the scene that was probably the most troublesome, or not troublesome, was obviously the the final showdown between Kirk and and Kral. And we've all seen the film, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, because. It, it, we didn't want it just to be, oh, Kirk kicks the bad guy's ass kind of thing. It, it needed to have something. And so, and we knew it was coming up last. It was in Dubai. Aside from all the practical craziness of, of everyone hanging off ropes and having a cold, that black eye of Chris's at the end is real, by the way. Thanks, Idris. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> planted a, a cracker on him. But we, we were, Doug and I were trying to figure out ways to make it more interesting, and we were trying to push for this idea that maybe Kral would have a change of heart. Lindsay was always saying, look, this, if you're going to do that, it has to be earned. And we were trying to find this way to make it work, but it, it didn't. So we ended up trying to sort of like have the audience infer that maybe he's coming to help. But, and thank you, Lindsay, for, for dog, so doggedly sort of saying, don't do something which is going to feel kind of unearned. And that's just an example of how collaborative this job was. You know, we, we, we always had, Lindsay was always there for, for all three of us, you know, as what Justin was for Doug and I, as Doug and I were for each other, just there to make sure we stayed on the right track. Got two more questions. You right here, and then you in the red sweatshirt. Uh, my question's for Justin. Justin, with taking over for JJ as the director of this film, and having your own creative voice to put input into it, is it a bit more challenging when the previous director is one of the executive producers does it feel like he's hovering, or do you feel that you're still allowed to have your own, uh, your own say? <laughs> Wait, hold, hold on one second. <laughs> I, I, I've this been a, it, it's been a pleasure, you know. And JJ's been nothing but gracious and generous. I I I, I feel like um, I, I couldn't ask for a, a better experience. You know, I mean, the, the one thing that, that was a fact was that going from idea to production in six months, that was the, uh, that was the challenge. But, but having a group of people that really are trying to be respectful and, and trying to build things the right, right way, um, I don't know, I just, uh, I, I feel very fortunate, you know, um, and, and to have the support and as we we're building it. I mean, it was never easy, but, but filmmaking is not supposed to be easy, you know. Um, and uh, you know, we were just in London. I, I remember just looking at Simon. And we were the four of us were in this room in, in Soho with nothing. And this is end of January. And we're like, we're going to be shooting in, in June. You know, a whole crew waiting. And so um, to 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 really have a, a group of people to, to try to do it right. You know, that that really is. Um, I, I feel like um, it's very rare. But I'll, at the same time, I think it's. Uh, I'm, I'm very thankful. Uh, thank you all for coming, and uh, great job with this movie. Uh, Simon, thank you for coming to the screening last night, uh, right off of uh, the UK premiere, which was not the European premiere. So <laughs> thank you. For uh, Simon and Doug, in creating a fantastic villain in Crawl, I was very curious, was there any thought behind, is the reason he and his, uh, his crewmates look the way they do now, is it because of long-term exposure to that planet, uh, or is it because the technology draws 
like not just the life force of his victims, but also their DNA. So he's he's sort of hybridizing himself with the DNA of all these other alien creatures who he you may have it. captured over the years. That's exactly what the idea was, that, that, that he discovered this ability to prolong life, and it meant a sort of vampirism of, you know, uh, uh, absorbing DNA, which changed him physically, and the idea was, and this was a hard idea to get across in the time that we had, was that the more humans he did it to, the more he started to get back to who he was before, you know. But yeah, Jayla mentions that the, the three characters that attack Scotty, they're all from various ships that Kral has brought down for the purpose of harvesting, you know, people that he can vamp off. So that was kind of it, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and there was a, we thought it was kind of an interesting physical metaphor of the, 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 the character who uh, has a real problem with inclusion and uh, diversity in, in his own way for his own reasons, but he physically takes, he physically becomes something else uh, which is so counter to his own. Yeah, he's the living embodiment philosophy. of diversity. You know, he has right. so much of diversity inside his inside his blood, and uh, we thought that was really nicely ironic that he was almost like a walking hypocrisy. You know, but the more that he the m and also the more human he becomes, the more he starts to remember his humanity, and that was all about that last moment. Right, was yeah. you know when he's fighting Kirk up there, and he, he takes that look at Yorktown, and it's like you just want to hear in his head going, "Are you doing the right thing here?" You know, and um, but yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a tough concept to, to kind of communicate. I one, think one of the first ones that I remember Justin talking about about a character who who, who had that embodied those ideas. I mean, that was way up. That was January seventh yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> that was on the on, on the longest day. <laughs> Ashley, I got I got the last question. So the end of the film, we all know how the movie ends. So where does the Star Trek feature film series go from here? Have you given thought about? Episode four. Uh, yes, and uh, th there's something that uh, hopefully we're uh, figurative minutes away uh, from talking about. But uh, the answer is 100% yes, and uh, it's incredibly exciting. I love the way that ends. All right, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, Lindsay, JJ, Justin, Doug, Simon. Star Trek Beyond opens next Friday, July 22nd. Oh, yeah. I call it Furious 6. That's